From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The first official Quality Services Management Office will be at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency for Cybersecurity Services. The Office of Management and Budget designated four agencies as QSMOs about a year ago. FedScoop reports agencies can share cyber technologies and services with CISA starting immediately. Some leadership changes are coming at the Federal Acquisition Service at the General Services Administration. Bill Zielinski is leaving as Assistant Commissioner of the Information Technology category to become a Chief Information Officer at a city in the West. Deputy Assistant Commissioner Laura Stanton will replace Zielinski on an acting basis. Federal News Network reports Vera Ashworth of CGI Federal will join FAST as Deputy Assistant Commissioner. The Internal Revenue Service is calling 10,000 mission-critical employees back to offices across the country for tax season, but the agency's telling them to bring their own personal protective equipment when they come back. Federal Times reports IRS Chief Human Capital Officer Robin Bailey Jr. and Deputy Chico Kevin McIver tell employees the agency's trying to procure enough PPE for every employee, but facilities might not get them in time for employees' return. More federal employees than ever are participating in the Thrift Savings Plan. The TSP's participation rate is at a new high of 92.9%. Kim Weaver is Director of External Affairs at the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. Kim, I know that you and your colleagues at the TSP think that that is really good news. What is driving that? What's your sense of what is getting so many more people on board and into the Thrift Savings Plan? It really is the power of auto enrollment, um, as well as people not opting out. We have a very low opt-out rate, and as new employees come on, they're not opting out, and so that number creeps ever higher. Um, we're seeing the same uh, thing in uniform services, where that number is up to 70%. Um, and again, that's due to blended retirement having auto enrollment. Do you have data and uh, what data do you have on what people are doing once they sign up, whether they just have, uh, whether they're new employees just onboarding or maybe they've been in government for a long period of time about how they're moving from the 5% for auto enrollment to other percentages, either lower or higher? Well, at the moment, they're only enrolled at 3%. And actually, that's one of the projects we're working on starting October 1st, all new federal employees and uniform services will be auto-enrolled at 5%. Uh, what we do see is that a number of people, and I don't have the statistics off the top of my head, but a fair number of people contribute more than 5% so that they are adding their own money on top of the 5% they're putting in to get the government match. There are some provisions in the CARES Act for people all across the country to uh, do the change the ways that they're contributing to or withdrawing from their retirement plans. How is that impacting the thrift savings plan? What applies from the CARES Act to how people are interacting with their TSP accounts, Kim? Well, there are three provisions that apply to, um, to the TSP. Uh, there's one that deals with the required minimum distribution one with loans and one with withdrawals. Um, the CARES Act was signed on March 27th, 
which was only a month ago. I think every day now feels like four days. So it seems like it was much longer than it than it really was. Um, we, we implemented the RMD provision on April 14th. And what that means is we suppressed all required minimum distributions for the rest of 2020. And so uh, if people are taking monthly payments and a portion or all of that was categorized as RMDs, they, um, they're, it is now not. And the importance of that means that they can put that money back into the TSP if they want, or they plan like an IRA um, and they don't have to take, pay the taxes. They don't have to use the money if they don't. Uh, want to. And we have gotten some people who were upset that we didn't stop their monthly payments. But the problem is we don't know who's taking monthly payments just for RMDs and who's taking monthly payments to pay the bills. And God forbid we shut off that, um, you know, flow of money to people if they actually need it. Mm-hmm. What What's the provision for the, loans in the CARE Act, Kim? It allows people to take out a loan up to $100,000 um, and it also allows them to suspend repayment. Um, both, and then on hardship, it's the same thing. It allows people to. Well, it's not a hardship. It's we're calling it a, a corona withdrawal because it's sort of separate from any of the other withdrawals we have. Um, we're working on both of those. We have a we have a corona page on tsp.gov where we're posting all of the information we've got, um, and we're we will be implementing those. Uh, the problem is. Previously, when special things have been done, it's been in for wildfires, for example, in California, a relatively small population. We could handle that manually. The corona provisions are very expansive and could potentially apply to millions of our participants. So we need to do that in an automated way. There's just no way for us to handle it manually. Um, And we're hoping that we'll be able to make an announcement about when we can implement those relatively soon but i don't have a specific date yet and what about withdrawals what are the what are the differences for people in the that the cares act provides for as far as withdrawals go it allows people again to take up to a hundred thousand dollars out and repay it over three years um or spread the taxes out over three years if in fact you don't repay it um so it's not a hardship withdrawal because a hardship withdrawal permanently depletes your account Um, And it's not a regular withdrawal because a regular withdrawal, again, can't be repaid and the taxes can't be spread out for three years. So um, it's causing us to do extra programming to sort of uh, address those various uh, permutations that aren't applicable to our other uh, withdrawals that we already have. We have about a minute left and you read my mind, Kim, because my question was going to be, what do you have to do behind the scenes to make sure that every federal employee, uh, every participant in the TSP can do what he or she wants to do as a result of these changes? What we're doing, we did the additional withdrawals program, as you remember, back in September. And what we're doing is we're modifying that programming Um around the edges so it's it's little things but of course you want to test it if you're going to have potentially millions of people using it you it it's not just a throw it up there and hope that it works um so again we'll 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 keep people notified when things are available on our tsp.gov page but and we know people want it we're well aware of that and we're working as quickly as we can 
Kim Weaver, thanks as always. Stay safe. You too, Francis. Up next, using data to respond to the coronavirus pandemic. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the data agencies will need to decide when to open again. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. This Industry Matters segment is brought to you by BDO. Federal and local officials will, will rely on data to decide when it's time to open doors to their workers again. Agencies will also need to decide how they use the data they have to make crucial decisions about the coronavirus response. Doug Merritt is CEO of Splunk. Doug, thanks very much for coming on. What are the most important elements for government agencies, government organizations to consider when they're parsing all the data they have about COVID-19? Well, thank you very much for having me on, Francis, and good morning. Um, we've been working with a number of agencies uh, at the federal, state, local level, as well as private sector to try and address the four main threads that uh, everybody is wrestling with right now. Um, the first is much better visibility on what it's going to take to expand testing. Um, being able to see the enemy, obviously, is very important. Um, the second is any assistance we can provide on effective and safe track and trace. Uh, the third is uh, better visibility into healthcare supply chain, for lack of a better word. Um, where are medical staff, what hospital beds are available, what equipment is available so they can be flown, they can ebb and flow to different areas. Uh, depending on what we're seeing with both the uh, testing and then movement of populations. Um, and the fourth is any assistance with both therapies and vaccines. The, the third element that you mentioned there is interesting to me because of the way that you put it. Um, you said, Doug, that the supply chain, you, you referenced the people that are part of the supply chain. And I wonder if you track data-wise the people in a supply chain the same way that you track the stuff in a supply chain. Uh, so right now, I think one of the issues we're all dealing with is the actual healthcare supply chain is not well tracked. It, it is possible. Um, people have just not spent the time on it that they that they need to. Um, for a for the healthcare supply chain, the individual attributes, other than skills and availability, are not that critical. Um, do I have technicians available with the right skill, skills that haven't just worked 48 hours straight, for instance? Um, what kind of doctor and nursing capability do I have? Um, so much of that healthcare supply chain is portable. It may you know, take a lag of transport, but uh, in today's modern age, that lag doesn't have to be that great. Um, and we can ensure that as a nation, uh, as one city or one state is dealing with a spike that we're actually able to help support the, those, those local populations effectively. The smart organizations all across government and the private sector too are collecting best practices as they're going along. Is it possible to automate that data collection that you just talked about, especially about the people, so that we don't have to push a button and recreate, reinvent the wheel the next time there's some pandemic or some other health crisis, that we can just basically push a button and get that data call and know exactly all of those things that you just specified? Absolutely. Um, I think if we listen to what General McChrystal did so effectively uh, while he was in charge, uh, the 
video calls that he held daily uh, for 7,000 plus people across multi-disciplines of the DOD, um, I think are a best practice we can begin to emulate so we can sense and gather information and see patterns of correlation, even verbally and manually through video feeds and, and communication um, across different states and across the nation. Uh, the um, artifacts from those video calls, as well as from any documents or other shared material, absolutely can be queried, um, can be both stored and queried so that uh, you can, over a longer period of time and with additional curiosity questions and insights, uh, draw new patterns and new capabilities from that information. Through this crisis, have you seen or heard big success stories, things that surprised you or anything from your customers or other organizations in government where you went, wow, I, I knew that was possible. I didn't know people were actually doing it or anything like that, Doug? Um, a few really, really bright spots. Uh, one, we've had just to see the number of organizations uh, across different governmental uh, entities that have moved from work at, at a location to virtual work and do it relatively smoothly in most cases is astounding. Um, we've helped a number with our remote work insights uh, application that we released about a month ago um, that helps those organizations uh, understand how many people are connected. Are they connected securely uh, through their VPN or, or other secure access means? How many people are in a video conference? What kind of performance are they receiving uh, across those different uh, Zoom or Microsoft Teams or other video conferencing frameworks? Uh, the second is uh, better intelligence on what is happening with employee populations and then uh, additional populations that might surround employees. Um, we published a series of applications again about a month ago that uh, tap into a large array of different data sources that do exist already um, around uh, health and uh, growth of the virus, cases, death rates, et cetera. And people have been able to both look at, at those dashboards, which you can see if you go to splunk.com, um, those are the public sources, but you can take that exact same set of technologies and adapt it for your own distinct organization or corporation usage. Um, and then we have someone like uh, the state of Australia, the, the entire country of Australia, um, where we partnered with a number of other entities, including AWS, to uh, help them very rapidly build a distributed uh, track and trace application um, that's hosted in the cloud uh, that so far has close to 3 million downloads in less than 48 hours. Doug Merritt of Splunk, thank you very much for coming on. It's great to have you on the program. Thank you very much for having me, Francis. Uh, honored to be here. Up next, a look at pricing the cloud at the General Services Administration. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the coronavirus could impact the agency's cloud goals. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Leadership Changes. The General Services Administration's Federal Acquisition Service won't change the agency's strategy to buy for other organizations. Flexible pricing for cloud services is a part of GSA's federal marketplace strategy. Steve Gruels, Chief Technology Officer at Cohesity. He's also former Deputy CIO at the General Services Administration and former CIO at the Education Department. Steve, thanks for coming on. What's the biggest challenge that you're seeing agencies have as far as buying cloud services right now? Uh, and I think, uh, thank you for having me, Francis. I think truly the ability to consume uh, cloud services that are constantly changing, 
uh, that are consumption-based and then also leveraging their current funding structure. Uh, there's a lot of complexities with, with uh, you know, the way the appropriations are done and whether or not they're leveraging know your money, multi-year money. But I would say fundamentally, it's the procurement uh, area that's the biggest barrier in terms of how do you truly acquire consumption-based cloud pricing. What makes the most sense to fix that either from a GSA perspective or from an individual agency perspective, or maybe that's the crux of the issue, that agencies shouldn't be in the individual agency cloud buying business in the first place. But what fixes that landscape in your view, Steve? I think the, uh, the series of things that are actually being done under the marketplace strategy will be a big help. I think the consolidation of schedules, uh, which comes with modifying TNCs, I think the terms and conditions today of doing business uh, for the cloud community is incredibly uh, burdensome. Uh, so I think the ability to change that's going to be huge. And I think from a customer agency perspective, consuming those services and from as far as the GSA workforce and the contracting workforce there, uh, the ability to you know make that process simple and easy for agencies to actually leverage those uh, acquisition vehicles, lever leverage those services and make it, you know, uh, do it in the most seamless way I think will be done and to your point, yes, I think there's certainly efficiencies, uh, both cost efficiencies and technical efficiencies of doing it in a more central fashion by the GSA uh, at the GSA. Is it, I guess then that means that it is a, a positive development in your view that agencies are not just doing, but coming out and saying, we're going to do it that way. Soraya Correa at DHS within the last six months or so, saying instead of reletting an Eagle 3, the next gen of Eagle, we're going to use the schedules as much as possible, that kind of thing. There are other agencies doing the same thing. That's a positive development, it sounds like, in your view? Yes, a very positive development. I think the overall construct of consumption by the GSA is moving in the right direction. Of course, the government as a whole is, is far more powerful in terms of volume-based pricing or negotiations uh, with the vendor community if we actually can leverage that level of scale. So I think it's absolutely a positive sign uh, that we're seeing by DHS as well as other agencies uh, moving in that direction. From the industry perspective though, there seems to be a perception that it's all or nothing. And we see this in the JEDI uh, deal at the Department of Defense. Uh, three companies, they're basically locked in this battle for what they perceive to be an all or nothing procurement. Is that a risk too? And, and what's the right balance for an organization so that they can, so that either the agency itself or GSA as a whole can leverage competition to the maximum extent possible while still making it make sense for the companies like you just talked about to give agencies deals at scale? Yeah, I think a, a diverse uh, approach is the right approach. A multi-vendor approach is the right approach. When we think about multi-cloud, uh, multi-cloud consists of a variety of not only the large CSPs, but even other SaaS providers. So to, to maintain a competitive environment, both technically and financially, I think it's incredibly important to have that diversity from a vendor perspective. Um, also, you know, we, we talk about things such as vendor lock-in. Um, a lot of agencies still are in the process of modernizing and still have a lot of legacy uh, assets and technical debt. And as they're, you know, moving, kind of dipping their toes in the water to adopt cloud and they're moving into cloud, they want to be mindful of kind of a holistic architecture that doesn't lock them into any one relationship, any one environment, and they can truly maximize uh, uh, their portfolio of offerings to, to, you know, provide the most efficiency for the taxpayer as well as the consuming agency. I had one of those moments, Steve, the other day where I felt really old when I realized that it's been more than 10 years since the <laughs> cloud first strategy came out 
from Vivek Kundra <laughs> as the chief information officer. So we've been talking about these issues in the government space for a long time now. Are we finally evolved to the point where we're really basically talking about three formats? We're talking about an on-prem cloud, an off-prem cloud, and a hybrid cloud. There was a time where there were all these different flavors and that really provided more than anything else an element of confusion to the people who were trying to figure out what they needed. Yes, absolutely. Yes, I was at the Department of Education when that when the 25 point plan came out and Cloud First was there. And I think one of the barriers to adoption was just the overall compliance uh, framework. Uh, FedRAMP was pretty early at the time. And of course, like you said, there was kind of this notion of on-prem, you know, uh, public cloud or then hybrid. I think really after, you know, 10 years and based on our learnings, both in the private and uh, uh, public sector, I think the hybrid multi-cloud approach is really the right approach. Uh, you know, not all workloads are a good fit for the cloud. Uh, some workloads and use cases make sense on-prem. Uh, some are, are, are a good fit for the cloud. So I think the, the ideal architecture and the ideal scenario today is to have uh, a, a broader architecture that gives you access to the cloud uh, and access to cloud services while still maintaining uh, on-premise uh, data center you know, services that are aligned with the cloud uh, so you can truly you know, provision to the cloud, back from the cloud, to the data center, you have that flexibility of moving between those environments, but also have the ability to rent versus buy, kind of that whole analogy of where it makes sense to, uh, you know, leverage commodity cloud and, and, and other mission services may be better candidates uh, for uh, the on-prem data center. So I think if you now, we talk a lot about the edge, we talk about the data center, public cloud, managed service providers, et cetera, but it's really the, the hybrid multi-cloud architecture is the one I think uh, the industry and uh, agencies have largely settled on. Steve, thanks very much for coming on. Terrific insight, look forward to having you come back. Thank you very much, Francis, appreciate it. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You can find it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.